everyone. This is Trish from Criminal Discourse Podcast. Unfortunately, this week I'm down a co-host, so it's just going to be me sharing this week's episode with you. But don't worry, Maddie should be back next episode. So without further delay, let's get started. This week's episode is about Rodney Akala, the dating game killer. He is a serial rapist murderer convicted of killing at least seven females, ranging from young girls to women. And he also was convicted of sexually assaulting two minor children. What makes him so monstrous was that he toyed with his victims. He would strangle them until they lost consciousness, and then he would revive them only to strangle them again. And he would repeat this process several times until he finally killed them. Rodney Acala was born August 23rd in 1943 in San Antonio, Texas. In 1951, when Acala was around eight years old, his father moved the family to Mexico, and this included his mother, two sisters, and a brother. But just three years later, he would end up abandoning the family. So around 1954, his mother moved the family to the Los Angeles suburbs. Now, when Acala was 18, around 1961, he joined the U.S. Army, where he served in a clerk position. Now, his time in the military wasn't without problems. There were allegations of sexual misconduct and a possible nervous breakdown. He did end up going AWOL from Fort Bragg, but military authorities found him at his mother's house. So I guess a note here would be, if you're going to run away from anything, don't return to your parents' house, because that's pretty much the first place they're going to look. So they did find him, and they brought him back. He was evaluated by a military psychiatrist, and he would end up receiving a medical discharge with the diagnosis of an anti-personality disorder. Over the years, he would be evaluated numerous times due to his various trials, and he ended up being diagnosed with, at different times, a narcissistic personality disorder, an inflated self of self-importance, a borderline personality disorder, extreme emotions and impulsiveness, and a malignant personality disorder with psychopathy and narcissistic sexual sadism comorbidities, which is basically a fruit salad that captures everything. So at the end of all this, you could pretty well say he is diagnosed as a psychopath. In 1968, once he's out of the military, he's around 25 years old. He enrolls at UCLA School of Fine Arts, and he's a film student. That also was the same year he's known to have committed his first sexual assault on an eight-year-old girl named Tally Shapiro. One morning in September of 1968, the authorities had received a call from a concerned citizen who witnessed this beige-colored car with no license plate following a young girl who had eventually gotten into the vehicle. Now, this Good Samaritan just felt that something wasn't right, and they followed this car and saw them go into an apartment. So then they went and contacted the police. L.A. police officer Chris Camacho received the call, and he made his way to the apartment building. When he knocked on the door, the man kind of answered. He was behind the door and said, oh, I got to get dressed. I was in the shower. And Camacho said, you have 10 seconds to open this door before I kick it in. And he ended up kicking it in. So as he's coming in the front door, this guy is apparently running out the back. But when Camacho enters the apartment into the kitchen, he sees Tally Shapiro on the floor. She has been raped, beaten, and covered in blood. There was so much blood, they said, and had a steel bar across her neck. Now, thinking she was dead due to the large amount of blood, he removed the pipe and continued to search the apartment for this perpetrator. He didn't know where he'd gone. So in searching the residence, he found photographic equipment in one room and a large amount of photographs of very young girls, along with a picture ID of Rodney Acala, an undergrad student at UCLA. So when Camacho returned to the kitchen, 
He was shocked to find Tally was alive. She was gasping for air, clearly not dead, and ended up rushing her to the hospital. Now, after Tally recovered, her family moved to Mexico to get her away from L.A. because they hadn't caught this guy. He was in the wind, and police had no clue where Akala was. Detective Steve Hodell was assigned to the case. He was a detective with the LAPD. And on an interesting side note, if the name is familiar, it's because he has a connection with the Black Dahlia case. He wrote a book called The Black Dahlia Avenger, published in 2003, as he believes his father, Dr. Steve Hodell, was responsible for Elizabeth Short, a.k.a. the Black Dahlia murder. So police start talking to Akala's friends and professors at UCLA who couldn't believe that this friendly, intelligent guy would do such a thing. They just couldn't accept it. And investigators would come to find out that Akala was a bit of a snake charmer. What police didn't know at the time, as they're looking all over LA for him, is that Akala has traveled to New York City, and he's enrolled in the New York University Film School under the name of John Berger. In 1969, since he was still wanted, the FBI did add him to the most wanted fugitive list. So in 1971, still using the name of John Berger, he got work as a camp counselor at an all-girls art camp in New Hampshire. That same year, Cornelia Crilly, a 23 year-old flight attendant for TWA would be found naked, strangled with a nylon stocking still around her neck and a bite mark on her breast, and she had been brutally raped in her Manhattan apartment, which she had just been moving into that day. Now, police wouldn't tie Akala to this murder for many years. So in 1971 also, two girls who were attending the arts camp had gone to the post office and had recognized Akala's photo on the wall as Mr. Berger. So they told the dean of the program about what they had seen, and the dean ended up contacting the police who came and arrested him because it was Akala, and they ended up extraditing him back to California to stand trial for the rape of Tally Shapiro. Now, Tally's parents refused to allow her to testify, so authorities were unable to convict him of the most serious charges, like attempted murder. So they offered him a plea deal for a lesser charge of child molestation, and he had to register as a sex offender. So he took the plea deal. Akala was incarcerated in 1971 under the indeterminate sentencing guidelines, which he got one year to life. Now, indeterminate sentencing at the time was where the length of one sentence is determined by their conduct behind bars. Now, as of 1984, that no longer exists due to the Sentencing Reform Act. But back then, Akala would only end up serving 34 months and he was freed on parole. So about two years, 10 months. So in 1974, he's released. And two months after his release, he's rearrested again for assaulting a 13-year-old girl identified in court records only as Julie J. She thought she was just accepting a ride from a kind stranger to school. Once again, he ended up serving a short jail term of just under two years until 1977. So he was paroled in 1977, and with permission from his parole officer, he traveled to New York City. And it's believed upon his arrival in New York, Akala would end up killing Ellen Jane Hoover, who was 23 at the time. This was in July of 77. Ellen Jane was a gifted pianist and an aspiring orchestra conductor. She was the daughter of a popular nightclub owner in the West Hollywood nightclub of Ciro on Sunset Boulevard. Back in the day, this was a very popular club that Judy Garland, Marilyn Monroe, Lauren Bacall, and Frank Sinatra were often frequent guests. And she was actually the goddaughter of Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. 
Rider, so known as the Rat Pack back at that time. I don't think today the club exists in that connotation. It's now known as the Comedy Store. So when Ellen Jane Hoover disappeared and police began investigating, a lot of the information of what they were dealing with came from her cousin. And her cousin had shared with them that Ellen Jane had written down in her date book the name of a photographer John Berger, who had graduated from the UCLA Film School. And according to her friends that they talked to, this man kept pressuring her to have lunch with him. But because she was so nice, she didn't want to say no, so she agreed. The problem was, she never came back from that lunch date. Her remains would be found on the grounds of the Rockefeller Estate 11 months later. Now, this estate was a favorite photo shoot location of Akala's. But again, Ellen Jane's murder would not be connected to him for many years to come. In 1978, Akala had made his way back to California, and he appeared as a contestant on the popular game show, The Dating Game, and this was in September of 78. You can see this episode, or at least the segment he's on, if you go on to YouTube and just type in Rodney Akala Dating Game, that'll come right up. So he was introduced as a successful photographer and a skydiver. So if you've never seen this game show, it starred usually a bachelorette, and behind this screen would sit three bachelors. And the bachelorette would end up asking the bachelor various questions. And at the end of the game show, she would pick the bachelor that she wanted to go on a date with. She ended up picking bachelor number one, who was Rodney Akala. By the way, they won tennis lessons and a trip to Magic Mountain. So after the show, they were backstage talking. And the bachelorette, her name was Cheryl Bradshaw, she ended up refusing to go on a date with him because she found him creepy. And I say to that, go girl, you followed your gut. She knew something wasn't right, and she just refused to go on this date, and it may have ended up saving her life. So on June 20th, 1979, a 12-year-old girl by the name of Robin Samso, who was from Huntington Beach, California, disappeared on her way to ballet class. When she didn't return home by 5 p.m. that night, her parents could find no trace of her or her bicycle, which she had with her that day. Her body would be found 12 days later by a fire crew conducting a routine fire prevention maintenance in the Los Angeles. Angeles foothills 40 miles from her home. Due to being left out in the elements and the animals in the area, unfortunately only skeletal remains were found. Through the police investigation, they talked to Robin's friend, Bridget Wolver, who had been with her earlier that day at the beach. Now, when they were at the beach, they were approached by a man who offered to take their photograph. Fortunately, there was a neighbor nearby, and she saw this going on, this middle-aged man approaching these young girls. So they walked over to see what was going on, and by the time they got there, the man had walked away. A sketch was circulated based upon Bridget's description, and Akala's former parole officer recognized the sketch and notified authorities working on Robin's case. So on July 24th, 1979, Akala, who was about 36 at the time, was arrested and held without bail. A search warrant was obtained for Akala's mother's home, whom he was living with at the time. And in their search, police would find a receipt for a storage locker in Seattle, Washington. Now, while Akala was in jail, his sister visited him and their conversations, of course, were recorded. But he asked his sister for a favor. He asked her to go to Seattle, Washington and clear out his storage locker. He didn't believe the police knew about the locker because he didn't know they had found the receipt. Now, the police fortunately were able to beat the sister to the locker, and in doing so, they found hundreds of photographs of young girls in various poses, some nude, 
and very sexualized. There were also some pictures of young boys, but these weren't from my research. I couldn't find that there had anything of a sexual connotation to them as the girls' photos did. And you can find some of these photos online if you go to cbsnews.com and search for serial killers' secret photos. Police also would end up finding Robin Samso's earrings, which he tried to claim were his, but later DNA testing will show he lied. February 1980, Akala was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death in the murder of Robin Samso. But in 1984, the California Supreme Court, in a 5-1 to decision, would overturn his conviction because jurors had been improperly informed of Akala's prior sex crimes. So he's still in jail, and in 1986, he goes on trial again, with the prosecution laying out the same exact case as the first trial, but just not mentioning the previous sex crimes that he had on his record. Akala was again convicted and sentenced to death. But the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals would nullify his conviction in part because a witness was not allowed to support Akala's contention that the park ranger who found Robin's body had been hypnotized by police. So Akala remains in jail, and in 1994, he writes a book, a self-published book entitled You, the Jury. And this book is regarding the murder of Robin Samso, and he gives an alternative theory about who the real killer might be. Now, I was able to find one review for this book if you go to Amazon UK, and this one review was for a Dr. Joe E. And just to kind of summarize his review of the book, he said it's interesting in a perverse sort of way, twisted, politically incorrect kind of way, but it does give you some fascinating insight into the mind of a serial killer. So how this book helped the prosecution was that it would end up tying Akala to a set of facts he made long before DNA testing. So he's remaining in jail, and in 2004, technology has advanced so much that from cold case files, DNA matches were made that led to the indictment of four additional rape murder charges for Akala. These victims were Jill Barcombe, 18. She was a New York runaway found in Los Angeles Ravine in 1977. Georgia Wittext, 27, was found bludgeoned in her Malibu apartment in 1977. She was a cardiac care nurse. Charlotte Lamb, 31. She was found raped, strangled in the laundry room of her apartment complex in 1978. She was a legal secretary. Her earrings were also found in the storage locker in Seattle, Washington. And Jill Parental, 21, was killed in her Burbank apartment in 1979. She was a computer program key punch operator. Now, all four of these bodies were found posed in what police describe as carefully chosen positions. They were beaten and had trauma to their heads. Each body had been strangled with ligature marks that were very similar. So in 2006, the California Supreme Court ruled that the prosecution could join all five cases together. So in January 2010, Akala stood trial on all five murders. This was 31 years after Robin Samso's death. Now, Akala would act as his own attorney, and you know, that's never a bad decision, and I say that sarcastically. So Akala would spend five hours cross-examining himself using a different tone of voice when he was playing the part of defense attorney. I can't imagine what that jury thought sitting there listening to that. Now, through his cross-examination, of himself, he really didn't address the four murders that his DNA matched him with, but he instead focused all of his time on Robin's murder, saying, well, I didn't do it. 
I was on a job interview. So part of his closing argument, he played a song by Arlo Guthrie, Alice's Restaurant, which was from his 1967 debut album of the same name. Now, this is an 18 minute long song, and it's supposed to be a deadpan protest of the Vietnam War draft. But the portion that Akala played for the jury went something like this. These were the lyrics. I want to kill. I want to kill. I want to see blood and gore and guts and veins in my teeth. Eat dead, burnt bodies. Kill, kill, kill. I'm not sure what his point was playing that, but I'm sure it didn't help him. The jury would end up deliberating for a little over one day, and they ended up convicting him on all five counts. So during the penalty phase, Tally Shapiro appeared and gave an impact statement. And in March 2010, Akala was sentenced to death for the third time. Also of March 2010, the Huntington Beach Police and the New York City Police Department released over 120 photographs that Akala had taken. And this was out of over thousands. These were the only ones that really weren't too self-explicit. So they released them hoping that people would recognize their photos and notify the police that they're alive. And 21 women did. So I don't know to date how many women have come forward to say, yeah, that's me. Nothing happened. It was fine. Or maybe something did happen. So also in 2010, the Seattle Police Department named Akala a person of interest in the unsolved murders of Antoinette Whitaker, 13, who was murdered in July 1977, and Joyce Gaunt, 17, murdered in February of 78. Evidence had been found in his storage locker in Washington State that linked him to these two murders. In 2003, New York detectives, armed with a warrant, flew to California to visit Akala to get a dental impression from him. So in doing so, in tying him with the DNA, in January 2011, a Manhattan grand jury indicted Akala for those two additional murders. In June 2012, Akala was extradited back to New York City, where he initially pleaded not guilty to both counts of first-degree murder, But in December of 2012, he would change his plea to guilty because he wanted to return to California to work on his death penalty appeals. So in January 2013, a Manhattan judge sentenced Akala to an additional 25 years to life. There is no death penalty option in New York State since it was formally abolished in 2007. So should he ever be successful to win his appeals in California, he would be extradited to New York to serve out 25 years to life. Also in March of 2011, there are potentially more victims as police in San Francisco, California are confident that Akala was responsible for the 1977 murder of 19-year-old Pamela Jean Lampson, who disappeared after making a trip to Fisherman's Wharf to meet a man who offered to take photographs of her. Her body was found battered and naked near a hiking trail in Marin County. But with no prints or DNA, there's insufficient evidence to bring a charge. So we have New York State, California, Washington. Well, you can throw Wyoming into the mix. In 2013, a family member recognized a photo of Christine Thornton, who is 28. In September of 2016, Akala was charged with her murder as she had disappeared in 1977. But her body wasn't found until 1982, and not identified until 2015 when DNA supplied by Thornton's relatives matched tissue samples from her remains. At the time of her murder, she was six months pregnant. Now, Akala admits to taking her picture, but he claims not to have murdered her. I'm not sure how much I believe that. So Akala now is currently in his 70s, and he is too ill 
he claims, to make the trip from California to Wyoming to stand trial on this new charge. So again, should he win his appeals, goes to New York, does 25 years to life, and for whatever reason gets out there, he would be tried in Wyoming. So Akala today remains at the California State Prison in Corcoran pending further appeals of his death sentences. So usually at this time, we'll talk about some criminal discourse life tips. For this case, I would say if you're ever approached by somebody who says, hey, I'd love to take your picture. I know a modeling agency or I think I could get you seen by a modeling agency. If you're going to take them up on it, make sure you bring a lot of people with you. You do not go alone. And you also take a photograph of them and say, hey, I'm going to take a photo of you. And I'm going to send it to a, my parents or my dad or a relative who works for the police to have a background check run. That's okay, right? And if they seem skittish or they blow you off, take that as a sign not to go. Okay, that's it for this week. It's a rather short one this week. Like I said, Maddie should be back next week with another new episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you haven't checked out our Facebook page, please do so. You can find us at Criminal Discord Podcast. We also have two little mini teaser episodes we put out on there. And please, wherever you're listening to our podcast, be it Google Play or iTunes or Spotify, give us a five-star rating, give us some feedback, download our episodes. And again, we'd love to hear from you. If you have questions for us or you have information to add to stories we've done, we'd love to hear that too. So until next time, everybody, please stay safe, but also remember to be kind. Till next time, guys. Bye.